I'm the other John, the one not in camel's hair, the one from Galilee, son of a fisherman, brother of James, the one who followed Jesus three years as a disciple, and then the past five decades as an apostle. That's a lot of descriptions. This one's my favorite. I'm the disciple Jesus loved. They always say if you really know what you're in for, you'll never do anything. Those three years were the hardest and yet the best years of my life. It all started with an invite. We had only heard about Jesus, but there he was, walking on the shore of Galilee. And he sought us out to invite us. Come, follow me. We had no idea what we were signing up for, but we dropped our nets and didn't look back. I guarantee you that whatever Jesus saw in us was far more than we ever saw in ourselves. Sometimes we would just look at each other and laugh in disbelief. Wine at the wedding, flipping the tables in the temple, feeding 5,000, healing the blind, walking on water, raising Lazarus from the dead? If I hadn't been there, but I was there. If I told you every story about Jesus, we'd be here till next Sunday. I was there for everything, for the miracles, for the conversations. I was there on the mountain when Jesus shone like the sun, when he, we talked with Moses and Elijah, when God spoke. I was there when he rode into Jerusalem. I was there when we gathered for the Passover and he predicted his betrayal. I was there when Judas betrayed him. I was there next to his mother when he died. And I was there for his last words, it is finished. I was there hiding with the rest when the women came. I was the first one at the empty tomb. I was there and I believe but I want you to believe. That's why I wrote the story down for everyone who wasn't there. I want you to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. I want you to believe because by believing, you will have true life in His name. I remember when Lazarus died. I was there when Jesus spoke to his sister Martha. It was a promise and a question. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? I was there for all of it. I saw the empty tomb. I was there with the resurrected and living Jesus. I've spent my life bearing witness about these things, writing about these things, testifying about these things. Why? because I believe this. It's not me asking the question, it's Jesus. Do you believe this? We know a lot about the Apostle John, as you heard, he was the um, son of Zebedee, brother to James, probably the youngest disciple, as tradition has it, he was probably the only disciple to not be martyred, not killed for his faith. Um, he was a fast runner, as we heard, he took off with Peter at the same time the women saw the empty tomb and reported it back, and they both ran for the tomb, and John was there first. He was a faster runner, at least um, when you compare him to Peter. He um, 
wrote a lot of books of the Bible. He wrote the, the uh, Gospel of John. He wrote the three epistles, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. And then when he was exiled on the island of Patmos, he wrote the Apocalypse, the unveiling, the book that we know as the book of Revelation, the very last book of the Bible. Three times Jesus chose just three people, and John was one of them. Peter, James, and John went with Jesus to the healing of Jairus' daughter. Peter, James, and John were the only three disciples who were invited up to the mountaintop for the transfiguration when Jesus was transfigured and Moses and Elijah appeared. Just Peter, James, and John were invited by Jesus deeper into the Garden of Gethsemane on that Monday, Thursday to keep watch and pray. So we know a lot about the Apostle John. And as we're continuing this Lenten sermon series called Were You There? Talking about people who were with Jesus on the Passion journey and, and at the foot of the cross. We'll look at four other things about the Apostle John that are helpful for us um, where we are today in our walk. So let's come together in prayer and uh, ask God to bless his word. Lord, we would ask that you would grant blessing to the preaching of your word. Let it speak to us clearly. Thank you for this servant, John whom you loved, who loved you back, who wrote down so much of your good truth for us to enjoy and benefit from right now. Open our ears to hear, and may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. My Lord, my rock, and my redeemer, for Christ's sake we pray, and together we all say, amen. So number one for us this morning is John was called by Jesus and left everything to follow him. John was called by Jesus and left everything to follow him. And I want to talk about the intensity of what that commitment means, to leave everything and follow him. And if that's really something for us today in 2021. We know from Mark 1, 19 and 20, when, they had, uh, when he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, the guy we're talking about today, in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat, and the hired men, and they followed him. So notice here that the call came from Jesus and John left everything. His dad, the boat, the hired man, his occupation, his way of life, his locality, his home, whatever relationships he had. The call from Jesus came and John left everything to follow him. And that goes to the question for us, the application for us. Is that for us today? Is this radical calling of Christ on our lives truly to leave everything to follow him? The Puritans in the 1600s, and we got to be careful because we wouldn't agree with the Puritans on every point of doctrine, but they had this notion of easy believism. They saw brothers and sisters in their, in their midst, believers in Jesus, but they were engaged in what they called easy believism, kind of this notion that a lot of us have today. Like, I've got the good things in life. I've got health and a family, relationships. I've got enough money. I've got a house. I've got the good things in life. And if I just mix in a little bit of God, if I add some divinity, I think I should have some religion in my life, that probably would make things a little bit better. That's not the call that God has on our life. He doesn't call us to easy believers and just kind of mixing in some divinity. <clears throat> he says, leave everything and follow me. Talked about Dietrich Bonhoeffer before. I won't take for granted that all of you know who he was, so just a, a brief introduction. A, a Lutheran pastor in Germany, 1930s, 1940s, opposed the Third Reich and worked against it. He was caught and eventually paid with his life for his rebellion against the Nazis. But aside from being this war hero, he was a great theologian. Lots of great quotes. And the quote I'll show you in a minute ends with the, <clears throat> the most, most famous part, the part I'm familiar with. I didn't realize that there was this whole introductory part. And this speaks specifically to the radical call to abandon all and follow Jesus that we have on our lives. And it reads this way. The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering, which every man must experience, is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. 
It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. And now the famous part that I'm familiar with. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Die to the things that you're familiar with. Die to your comfort. Leave it all and walk with me. And you will find that what you left behind was something you could never keep anyway, and what you will have with me will last for eternity. So John heard the call and he followed him. We had a pastor that came and visited at least twice, maybe three times, named Jock Ficken. He was a guest pastor here, and I remember specifically one of his sermons was the call. And he talked about the specific call to redemption, this call to abandon all and walk with Christ, and then a more specific call, the call on your life. And he said, each one of you has a call from God on your life. Each one of you has a call from God on your life. What will you do with it? So this is a dramatic situation that Christ calls us and asks us to leave everything, to die to self, to follow him. And and let's be honest, that's troubling. That's a challenge. And that takes us to point number two. John followed Jesus even when it was difficult and he didn't understand. That's the Christian walk, right? Walking with Christ, allowing his power to pull us along even when things are difficult and we don't understand. The text I'll show you is from the story of Jesus' arrest. And what a confusing time that must have been for the disciples. They left everything to follow him. Three years they were with this Jesus. And now things turn sour. Things are surprising. They arrest him and take him away. Simon Peter and the other, other disciple were following Jesus. Just a simple sentence. The other disciple is John, this apostle that we're talking about. They were following Jesus. Jesus was bound with rope and taken away on his way to a mock trial to be executed for things that he had never done. He was an innocent man. This must have been troubling and difficult for John, but he continued to follow. Tim Keller, he's a pastor in Manhattan, he says this. He says, God allows things to happen to you or does things to you that you would allow to happen to yourself or do to yourself if you knew everything that God knows. God allows things to happen to you or does to you the same exact things that you would allow to happen to yourself or do to yourself if you knew everything that he knows. And that's the key, isn't it? We have, we have such a small fraction of knowledge of, compared to what God knows. We don't know what the future holds. We don't know where these events are going. We don't know what the outcome of these situations will be. He does. And so like John, we're called to follow even when things are difficult and we don't understand. I'm comforted, and I've used this a lot, and I hope it doesn't uh, become so repetitive to you that it, it, uh, it bores you, but it shouldn't. In John 6, J- Jesus gives a difficult teaching. It's hard to the people, and the Bible says many of his disciples left him. Right there, they said, that's it, this is hard, I don't, this isn't for me. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, will you leave me also? And Simon Peter answers, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. I preach this to myself often. When things look difficult and I go, oh man, this God path is hard. And Jesus says to me, will you leave me also? And then my response is, to whom am I supposed to go? There's, there's no other option. It's either life with God or life without, without God. You have given me the words of life. You've come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. 
Amy Carmichael was a missionary from about four generations ago, and she talks about an encounter she had with a, a goldsmith, but not a goldsmith who was familiar in the ways of the uh, North American trade or even in Europe. She was in the East, and this man was doing things in a very different way. And he would take the raw nugget of gold that needed to be purified and put it in the crucible. And with it, he would put some strange thing. He would put tamarind fruit, I don't even know what that is, and gold dust. It seems to me that's counterintuitive. He's putting dirt in with the thing that he wants to be purified. And then he takes that concoction and puts that crucible in a hot furnace and lets it burn. And the impurities burn out of the gold. And he takes it out and lets it cool. And he looks at it and inspects it to see if it's been purified. And if it hasn't, he puts it back in the crucible and puts more tamarind fruit and coal dust in it. And now he raises the, furniture, uh, <laughs> the temperature of the furnace much higher and puts it back in and lets the impurities burn off. And he takes it out and lets it cool and rubs it to see if it's pure. And, and they were questioning the man, why would you put stuff in when you're trying to burn the impurities out? And he says, it just works together that way. I know it seems counterintuitive to put dirt in with the gold when you're trying to burn the impurities out, but it all works together. And then they said, why don't you just raise the temperature of the furniture super high the first time instead of doing it lower the first time and higher the second time? And he says, I couldn't do that. It would ruin everything. The gold is not strong enough. It needs to be toughened in that first furnace experience so that it can endure and last through the second one and eventually work to purity. And maybe God's doing that in your life. Maybe you've been through the furnace once and he's adding stuff into your life, coal dust, tamarind fruit, weird stuff, and you're going, I don't get this. And he's working to make you who he wants you to be. And he's looking at you and he sees, okay, some progress, but then another furnace experience happens and maybe the temperature's even higher now. And he allowed you to go through that first one to toughen you, to make you who you are now so that in the second furnace experience, the second purification, it's even more effective. And eventually he takes you out and he lets you cool. And, and like that goldsmith, he rubs you with his thumb and the goldsmith says, I can tell that this is pure when I see myself in it. And God looks at you and he rubs you a little bit and he says, I, my child is becoming more and more like me. John followed Jesus even when it was difficult and he didn't understand. Number three for us is John was the disciple whom Jesus loved. The, the video talked about that. I'll spend a little bit of time here. Jesus was the, the disciple whom Jesus loved. So I'll show you a text here that's a little bit earlier in the story where Jesus is at the Last Supper with the disciples and he says, one of you will betray me. And I just want to show you this because it's John calling himself the disciple who Jesus loved. His disciples stared at one another. Remember, they just heard that one of them would betray Jesus. At a loss to know which one of them he meant. And one of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. That's John. Five places in the um, Gospel of John. John calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. And I think it's a neat thing to call yourself. I, I think it's John saying, man, look at this. I'm a fisherman from Galilee, nothing more. I have no merit. I bring nothing to the table, yet I am the one whom Jesus loved. And I wonder if some of us kind of look at that enviously and think, wow, that's cool. I wish I had that same relationship with Jesus that John had, that I could say about myself that I'm the one whom Jesus loved. And the beautiful core message of today's sermon is that you are. <laughs> Jesus didn't love John any more than he loves you. You can say the very same thing. I am the one whom Jesus loves. You can say that about yourself, this deep, beautiful, gratifying love. And we talk about love 
from the Bible often. And in the New Testament, there's lots of Greek ideas about love. There's agape and phileo and storge and eros. And we talk about those and it's important to unpack the nuances and the layers and the beauty of that kind of love. But for our purposes here this morning, I want to take us to the Old Testament and this Hebrew word for love, this beautiful word that's kind of funny looking. It's called chesed. Chesed. I know you want to say the word chesed. You got to do it with some throat. So turn to the person next to you and say chesed. Go ahead, say chesed. I hear some throats, some not. That's okay, you'll learn. Chesed, Hebrew word for love. I love it for lots of reasons, not the least because it looks like the word cheesed. I was at the pizza place that serves the lunch special. You get two slices and a pop for a good price. I went in there and the lady came out. I wasn't familiar with her. I said, I'll have two pieces of cheese. She said, I like, I like the cheese pizza the best. She said, I don't tell anybody, but when I make the cheese pizza, I put on extra cheese and don't tell anybody. And I thought, this lady's speaking my language. I almost got down on the knee and proposed. I'm like, you and I, lady. I mean, she lays it on thick. And then when you pick up the slice of pizza, the cheese oozes over the side and strings and drip, and it's so much, it's ridiculous. That's hesed love. That's God laying it on thick. And when you pull yourself away, it's oozing over you, and it's all over you, this hesed kind of love. We, we learn about it in the Old Testament. God passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in chesed, in love and faithfulness. So let's spend a few minutes unpacking this idea of this chesed kind of love. A website was very helpful to me. God's chesed denotes persistence and unconditional tenderness, kindness and mercy, a relationship in which he seeks after man with love and mercy. The same love that God has for Moses, this chesed love, the same love that John, uh, God has for John the Apostle, he has for you. And a couple of other layers that I want to un uncover for us in the time that we have left. One of the components of this chesed love is affection. Affection. God has great affection for you. There's something about my personality and my makeup that I don't do well with that. I know God loves me and he died for me and the whole story, but mostly <laughs> I think God's just annoyed with me. Like he's one of my kids, he's the one that I don't really like, but he's a part of my family and I'll keep him. But that's not true. He has great affection for me. He has great affection for you. And one of the places I take comfort when I wrestle this way is from the Old, Old Testament book of Zephaniah. God will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, <clears throat> but will rejoice over you with singing. Chesed, love, great affection. Being a parent has been very helpful for me in this because your kids are your kids and they're awesome and they do what they do and sometimes they err and sometimes they're on the right side, but even in their error, <clears throat> you have great affection for them. You never lose that. And I need to be reminded of that. And our daughter Esther now, she drives and she has a job, so we don't see her nearly as much as we used to. And I miss her. Great affection. This hesed love that God has for us. I heard a sermon on this uh, on Friday, and I was listening to the preacher, and four words, and maybe if you're like me, you need to write this down. There's not a space in your outline for it, but four words to put in your pocket to ponder later. They're four loaded words. God enjoys knowing you. That's all. God enjoys knowing you. This is the great chesed love. This is the great 
affection that God has for us. Second component that we want to uncover in this Hesed love is commitment. If, if anything, the Bible is a book of commitment. It's a book of promise. It's a book of covenant. It's a book of contract. God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. God covenants with Noah and Abraham and Moses and David. God covenants with his church. We are in agreement. There is a contract. There is an understanding. We have a commitment from God. Chesed love means commitment. Never will I leave you nor forsake you. That's what we read in Deuteronomy 31. We also know commitment from God in Isaiah 41.10. So do not fear, for I am with you, God said. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. Commitment from God. A God of commitment. Psalm 32.8. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. The same chesed love that God had for the Old Testament people and had for John, he has for you. One more component of this chesed love, action. It's a love of action. The ultimate loving act is Jesus on the cross. God loved us so much that he had to rescue us because we made a mess of everything. I'm teaching 7th um, and 8th grade religion here at Royal Redeemer Lutheran School. And I told the kids, I said, I know you're in seventh and eighth grade, and you don't have kids, and you're years away from having kids, but can you imagine when you're a grown-up and you've got a kid, and you take that child to the prison, and you have a meeting with the warden, and you say, you know that guy that you're about to execute because of the evil he's done, the darkness he's brought into the world of violence that he committed? Unstrap him from the executioner's gurney. Let him go free to live his life and take my child, whom I love, that I brought here with me today and strap my child to that gurney and insert the ex executioner's needle and, and the cocktail that will kill this child. And I could see the kids' faces, uh, even just with their masks on, thinking about this. God did this for us. He walked his son to the cross for you and, and took you down from there. You're, you're not going to die for your sins. I'm giving you life and freedom and let my son pay the debt commitment and action love, this chesed love that God had for Israel and for John and has for us today. So we wrap up here that John was with Jesus at the cross. This is the theme of our, of our sermon series, Were You There? Yes, John was there with Jesus at the cross. And what could this mean for us? Well, I'll show you a text, and again, it's loaded, and we could spend a whole sermon series talking about this text. This is where Jesus gives his mom Mary over to John. But I wanted to use it just to show you that John was at the cross. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved, that's John, standing nearby, he said to the woman, Woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother, from that time on, the disciple took her into his home. So John was at the foot of the cross. He was with Jesus at the end with the women. But I want to also show all of us that nobody was with Jesus through the entire, um, the entire ordeal. Even John and the women at a certain time abandoned Jesus. We're going to go to the book of Mark quickly here, and this is a little bit earlier in the story where Jesus is arrested and in Mark 14, we read Jesus saying, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me. But the scriptures had to be fulfilled. And then read right here. Then everyone deserted him and fled. So we don't know the story of how John and the women kind of fled here and then made their way back to Jesus and met him at the cross. But even they, 
even they said, see you later, this is too intense. I'm not, I'm not sure I'm buying into this. As Lutherans, we're a little bit uncomfortable with language like meet me at the foot of the cross or take your sins to the foot of the cross. And this comes from decades and even centuries of battling other belief systems that say, well, the sacrifice of Jesus happens every week. And we say, no, that didn't happen. But, but I think we can set that aside for now. And I think we can take ourselves to the foot of the cross. And we're bringing our dishonesty and our selfishness, our hatred, our darkness, all the sins that we bring and we give them to Christ and he takes them upon himself and becomes them and dies for them. And of course, we know three days later is alive again. And sometimes we think of John and the women at the cross, even though they fled, they made their way back. We think of them as the virtuous ones. Oh, didn't they have it right? Oh, only to be like them. They got it right. They figured out the secret sauce. They had it right. No, John was like you and me, Mary and the other Marys and the other women. They were like us. They were sinners too. They weren't the good ones. They were the bad ones, like me and you, like everyone who needed Christ's death and resurrection so that they would be made right, so that they would have light and life and direction and everlasting life. So at the foot of the cross we stand, and what do we do there? Well, one more quote from Martin Luther, and he says, Either sin is with you lying on your shoulders, or it is lying on Christ, the Lamb of God. Now, if it's lying on your back, you are lost, but if it's resting on Christ, you are free, and you will be saved. Now choose what you want. So it's been a fun journey through uh, Lent so far, this Were You There sermon series talking about people who are with Jesus, and we've got more to go. We'll, we'll hear about Judas, we'll hear about Peter and some others. But I hope you've been drawn closer to Christ in your journey, and I hope you'll continue on with us uh, toward Holy Week and Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday, and even Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday. But before we're done today, a couple of next steps, a couple of challenges. These are at the bottom of your outline, or maybe you can jot them down if you don't have a copy. Hear the call of the Savior and follow him. Lay it down. Leave your boats and your nets and your hired men and even your um, people that you're close to in order to follow Christ. And, and as I told the religion class, you'll find out that God says thank you for holding all those things with an open hand, but guess what? I'm going to let you keep most of that stuff anyway. Uh, number two, this Lenten season, let the chesed love, which, which means tenderness and kindness and mercy and affection, commitment and action, um, live in that chesed love, that cheese, <laughs> that laying it on thick, flowing over the side kind of chesed love. And number three, confess sins at the cross and receive forgiveness, the promised forgiveness that Christ gives to us freely. Let's come together and pray. Lord, we thank you that you loved John, but we understand this was in a unique and peculiar kind of love that you just gave to a, 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 a select few. You give it to the world freely, and in that love we have redemption because Christ, motivated by love and the joy set before him, endured even the cross. And now as free people, <clears throat> we rejoice. We live out a life that you've called us to live. We look to share your love with those that we encounter and we honor you in all we do. And we pray all of this in Christ's name, and together we say, amen.